And we're back with breaking news. Coke Zero Sugar might be the best Coke ever. That's right, Jim. Make sure... Jim. Ooh, yes, this tastes like the best Coke ever to me. We're on the air. I need to try it first. With Zero Sugar and refreshingly delicious, is Coca-Cola Zero Sugar the best Coke ever? Pick some up at Hy-Vee today. Fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ, a Chicago Bulls podcast on the Blue Wire Sports Podcasting Network. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the show. We're uh, coming at you straight after the Bulls unfortunately lost their home, or well, not their home opener, their season opener to the Charlotte Hornets. Something that probably none of us really expected to be talking about is, is a loss to open the Bulls season. Maybe in the previous two seasons, that's something we would be accustomed to talking about, but we were hoping for uh, something more for this season. But unfortunately, it was a big fat L for the Bulls against the Hornets. And here to discuss this game with me and more is my old friend, Will Gottlieb. Will, thanks for jumping on, mate. Glad to be here. I'm excited to talk about Bulls, even though that was a little bit of a stinker at the end there. Yeah, it was was such a weird game. And like I said, I did not plan on speaking about a loss at all. I I was taking some notes during the game and I even was forecasting some notes, you know, ahead of time and maybe I'll put a jinx on the team. But I was thinking this was going to be a discussion based on a nice, comfortable 15 or 20 point win. The Hornets were forecasted to be one of the worst teams in the NBA by pretty much everyone. But all of a sudden, here they are coming out, just drilling a million threes. And the Bulls, another team that people almost collectively were talking about as a team on the rise, they looked quite bad today. Did not look like their preseason self. So it was just an odd, weird game. Yeah, I think the uh, hype train got a little too far ahead of us there. Um, They did look really good, especially in that last preseason game. But just throughout the preseason, the way that they played, I know you've uh, talked quite a bit about it on your show, um, but they really looked like they were kind of turning the page on some of their old ways and trying to play a new modern style. <clears throat> and as it turned out, the Hornets really played the way that the Bulls should have been playing. They were just launching threes and getting shots at the rim. And the Bulls were kind of spending some time in the mid range and kind of reverting back to some old ways there. But uh, anytime you give up 23 threes in a game, it's just going to be hard to win. And uh, that, that, 122.8 defensive rating is going to need to come down for them to get back on track. Yeah, it, it was it was odd there. You mentioned the fact that the team in preseason at least had been playing a more modern style or a change of their offensive style to sort of catch up with the rest of the league and almost played the way the Hornets did tonight. But for whatever reason, the Bulls sort of re- reverted back to... I guess playing that game that we sort of saw from them last season in the sense that they were trying to get middle, trying to get into the paint. Not not not, not to say that it was all post players such. They, they did have some good looks inside. Lowry Marketing, we'll talk about him later. He was probably 
the shining light out of this game for the Bulls, given his preseason play and how impressive he was in this one. But they were getting a lot of nice looks around the baskets. This isn't really a good Hornets defense themselves. But for whatever reason, where the Bulls were putting up, you know, 40, 42% of their field goal attempts in preseason were three-pointers. They only had 33-pointers in this game against the Hornets in comparison to their 105 total three uh, total field goals taken in this game and like you mentioned there the Hornets they had 23 three-point makes so the Hornets almost had as many makes as the Bulls had in their attempt so anytime the the ratio sort of goes that way it's it's going to be tough to recover on but I want to talk about those Hornets three-point makes because I think that ultimately is the story of the game for both teams yeah um, when a team is kind of lacking in talent the way that they can kind of um, even the playing field is by trying to heighten the variance, and you do that by shooting a ton of threes. The Bulls were trying to do that, and I think they kind of started shooting a bit cold in the first quarter and then decided against uh, continuing on with that game plan. I think if they would have... I mean, they shot 33s, which is a solid amount. I'd like to see that number a little bit higher, but I think they just kind of saw themselves not... saw the game plan not really working and then kind of reverted back to some of these other things that we talked about. And really, it was kind of the opposite of what we saw during the preseason where Markkanen was fantastic and everybody else was kind of slow. Levine didn't really do much offensively until the second half. Um, and even then, he really struggled with efficiency and nobody could really get any offense going. And I think they just kind of lost it from there. Yeah, it was a weird game. I've mentioned that before, but whilst the Bulls gave up 23 made threes, and I got this in my mentions quite a bit tonight, but I felt like a good chunk of these threes were wide open looks. I'll have to go back and look at how many of them were, but it certainly felt from looking or watching the game that a whole heap of these threes were actually either open or wide open, depending on how you want to classify them as. And sure, the Hornets hit some tough threes, but at the same time, they're able to maybe knock down those threes because the Bulls enabled them to get going at some point. But particularly in that third quarter and that fourth quarter, Marvin Williams and Devontae Graham, these sorts of guys, they were just reigning in threes, and a lot of them were just uncontested because the Bulls just weren't rotating, and their communication and rotations beyond that initial action was just non-existent tonight. Yeah, so... I think what was really happening was they were allowing the ball to get into the paint, which obviously, if you can help it, you don't want to do. Um, the talent in the NBA just makes that pretty much impossible to cut off, so you have to make sure that you're, you're executing your rotation. So I think um, you know the, the help defense would step over. I really liked what I saw from Wendell in terms of uh, help defense and protecting the rim. I thought he had really good verticality. And then... From there, I think it kind of deteriorated. So when you have that kick out, you had the one guy who was closing out, but the, the Hornets' ball movement was just so good that they'd swing it around three or four times. Um, the one play where uh, P.J. Washington had it in the post, kicked it to the opposite corner, and then they had four passes around the perimeter back to P.J. Washington in the same corner that they started, I think really symbolized that whole game plan, which was just like great ball movement, and the Bulls just could not keep up as far as rotating and closing out. Yeah, it was a problem last season and maybe in the season before that too in the sense that the Bulls could maybe defend that first initial pick and roll action or whatever it may be okay, but then the minute the ball sort of gets flung out to the corner or it gets sort of rotates along the perimeter, then that's when the when the, uh, the holes will start to appear in the defense. And that was obviously the case tonight with the Hornets as well, where they would create that initial action. They'd get middle, like you sort of suggested, get into the paint, which would ultimately create their three-point attempts. But it wasn't just a get into the lane and just throw it out to that first attempt, that first or, or that guy that catches the ball and then shoots. 
the, the Hornets were really zipping that ball along the perimeter, and I think that's where the Bulls really super struggled in this game. They just can't stay with their guys. It just takes one bad rotation, and then all of a sudden this defense, it would appear, is ready to, to fall and collapse. So I guess that is probably the biggest concern that I have coming out of this game. I, I mean, a lot of the talk in preseason on this show and other Bulls podcasts and just more generally of anyone covering this team or watching this team was how good the offense looked in preseason, but there wasn't much spoken about the defense as such. And I get it. I understand why, given how bad the Bulls offense was last season compared to what they were showing in preseason. But I think we've sort of let the uh, the defensive side of the ball go unnoticed to a degree. Yeah, I would say so. And I think it's, you know, the really good teams like the Raptors last season, they have just so much... Um, high basketball IQ are on the floor on top of the length that they have. And so they're able to make those rotations. They have good communication um, and they don't kind of collapse after that first um, ball reversal after the kickout. And the Bulls have that same kind of similar length in terms of Otto Porter being 6'8", Lowry 7 feet, Wendell I think was 6'9", Sadoransky 6'7", Levine 6'6". Like these guys should be able to get out and, and contest shots. But I think for whatever reason, whether it was communication or just not understanding the rotations, they weren't able to do that. Um, so I think you can, that's like a very easy place to start in terms of Boylan being able to correct some of that stuff. Um, and, and hopefully they work on it. But I think you do have to be encouraged by the offense in some ways, just because, you know, they were able to put up 125 and you're not going to give up 23 threes on 52% shooting from beyond the arc every game. And so you lose by one in that game. Obviously the Hornets are not a great team, but um, yeah, those rotations were not great. I, I could still see um, some positives out of that though. One last question on the defense. I'll say one last, but I'm probably sure it won't be the last one. That's but, right. We, um, can, in we terms, can keep talking defense. <laughs> in terms, well, I don't necessarily want to because I, I always want to get to the positives because there were some positives and I, I don't want to make this a completely negative podcast. But I guess the other thing that was key to me as well was the, if the Bulls are going to play this fast style of offense and really get up and down, the offense wasn't really clicking in that first half. It, it sort of picked up towards the second half. But if, they, if they're going to have a, you know, a tough start to their offense in that first half and play fast, then they need to get better at playing in the transition defense as well, which is something else they weren't doing. I don't know how many times that happened, but uh, one of the Zellers, whichever damn Zeller plays for the Charlotte Hornets, Cody Zeller it is, he had a few transition dunks himself where no Bulls big man were actually picking him up and guarding him uh, as he was sort of streaming down the court. So if the Bulls want to play faster on offense to get their own offense going, then that makes sense. But in turn, if the ball is missing, if they're not drilling their own shots, and they need to get better at getting back in defense and playing some transition defense to stop some of these easy Hornets threes that were being created by those quick initial plays out of the Bulls' failed offense. Yeah, I think... The Bulls, maybe it was part of their game plan, maybe it just was circumstance, but they ended up with 20 offensive rebounds, which is a really huge number. Um, and I think, you know, the, with the length I, length I mentioned earlier, they can be a really good offensive rebounding team. But if they send two or three guys to crash the boards on the offensive glass, you're really, your floor balance is just not there. And so you have maybe Kobe White or maybe Zach Levine going back on, you know, a three-on-one fast break with your, your some of your weakest defenders. So uh, the, the the transition defense really does need to improve, but I think that's more of a game plan thing than anything else, or hopefully it is. 
yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed. And I mean, yeah, to your point, Larry Markin, five offensive rebounds. Wendell Carter, five offensive rebounds. My guy, Ryan Archidiakno, three offensive rebounds. So they were getting in there and getting creating second chance points, which they needed to do given their offense was sort of struggling initially. But I'd hate to think where this game would actually would have been out if they didn't get in there and crash on those offensive rebounds. It, it could have been, uh, the, the scoreline could have been a lot worse, I suppose. But Let's move away from the defense because I think we could focus on it for ages. And uh, look, it's probably going to be an issue that lasts for at least the first few weeks until this team sort of gets used to each other, gets gets a, a bit of an understanding of how they want to work on defense. But let's talk about the offense, what you saw on offense. We can maybe start with Larry Markkinen because I think that was probably the bigger positive. But I also want to focus on the uh, the late game situation there towards the end as well. But we'll start with Markkinen. What were your thoughts about Markkinen's game? It's clear that he's an avid listener of the uh, Bulls HQ podcast <laughs> with a direct FU to Mark. Um, he 25 shots. I, I really was not expecting that. Um, he, he came out really aggressive. I didn't even necessarily like some of the shots that he was taking early, but I did respect the fact that he just made it a point to get some shots up because I think when you're not the most, I don't want to say confident, but just aggressive offensive player, you really do need to spur yourself to get going in some way. And I think that's really the way that he's going to have to do it. Um, 35 points on 25 shots, seven threes, only made one of them. So 35 points having made one three, I'd say that's pretty good for Lowry. Um, Eight of 10 from the line, also a really good number in terms of showing how aggressive he was getting to the basket. And then you mentioned the offensive rebounds. He ended up with five of those um, for 17 total. So really complete game for him, I thought, uh, with the exception of maybe the outside shooting, which we all know will come. Um, but yeah, I just really like the aggression from him. Yeah, and I mean, you, you you sort of let off with it. But the reason why I had been concerned with Lowry was the fact that he was settling for the three. Almost 60% of his shots in preseason were three-pointers. He wasn't catching on the move. He wasn't necessarily doing anything around the basket like we know he can and like he has clearly shown to us that he can do. Obviously, he showed us that he can do that against the Hornets. So the Lowry we got, Tonight against the Hornets was a Larry that I wanted to see in preseason. I'm glad he obviously can still do this. So he did shut me up, which is good to hear. I'm going to take credit for that, actually. This is my the, the ultimate way to spin As this, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going, to, I'm going to take psychology. Exactly. I'm going to take credit for this Larry performance because he was he was the best ball out there tonight. 25 field goal attempts. That was a career high for the Larry as well. So he brought that aggressive nature that I was looking for. 25 field goal attempts, only seven threes taken. Seven threes is probably the right number for him, seven or eight, something like that. But the fact that he was sort of exploring the rest of his offensive game, that was most certainly a positive. Larry's defense, I guess like the rest of the team, it was probably non-existent, but you know, baby steps. His offense looked a lot better than where it was in preseason. But what did you make about the rest of the offense? Most, probably most importantly, you know, Zach Levine's offense as well. Maybe even Tomas Sadoransky and Otto Porter Jr. too. The rest of the starters, maybe outside of Wendell Carter Jr., were almost non-existent on offense. Going back to Lowry for, for one moment, I think the way that he was getting his offense was really encouraging. And I think that speaks to the way that kind of that whole starting unit was working. So, um, a lot of times he was coming off of pin downs or curls and catching the ball on the move going towards the basket, which considering his ability to, uh, like he can dribble the ball, but he's not like breaking guys down like a James Harden type. So he does need to have a little bit of, of a head of steam. I think that really helps him. Um, and when you can kind of set that to be your first option, then hopefully life can be a little bit easier on Zach Levine, on Sadoransky, on Carter and, and Otto Porter. Um, but yeah, those guys just... Didn't really shoot the ball all that well. Uh, Levine 
I, I don't think he scored until about like four minutes remaining in the second quarter. Um, just, I think he picked up a, a few early fouls and, and that really maybe messed with his head. But, um, you know, we were joking before the game, like what his over under was 40 points, Mort said. So, uh, obviously that is like a high number to begin with, but, you know, we are kind of expecting the 25 to 30 range from him. Um, and for him to score 16 points on 17 shots, that just doesn't cut it. Um, and then I think when he's not really scoring, the defense can really, um, sit back and, and defend against the other shooters that we have. So Otto Porter was only one for five on threes. Didn't really get much going in terms of attacking the basket. It was more passing out of the pick and roll, which was fine on that secondary pick and roll. He had a couple of nice plays, but ideally you want him to be spotting up and getting easy shots that way. So I think that just kind of domino effect of the way that Zach played really had an effect on everybody else. Yeah, I think that's all uh, most certainly a fair point. I want to continue talking about Levine, but before I do that, let's tell the listeners about this week's sponsors. Following a team you love in 2019 can be time-consuming. Trying to follow everything happening in sports is almost impossible. Scrolling through every app and visiting every website on a daily basis is impossible. That's why I subscribe to Axios Sports, the best free daily newsletter in the land. Axios Sports is a modern sports page delivered directly to your email inbox. When you sign up for free at sports.axios.com, you'll get all the best stories from the NBA and NFL to cricket and ping pong and everything in between. Axios Sports also highlights the most important stats and trends, giving you the ability to stay informed. It's super simple to sign up and it's free. Just go to sports.axios.com. Not only will you be caught up, but you'll be the friend that's sharing an amazing link with all your buddies. Join the 100,000 sports fans who get caught up on the day before it even begins. And best of all, there's no paywall, there's no subscription fee, nothing. This is free curated sports content delivered directly to you. Sign up at sports.axios.com. Again, try for free at sportsaxios.com. Let me also tell you guys about Indochino. Indochino was founded on the belief that you don't need to spend a fortune on a custom wardrobe. Custom is always the way to go, folks. I don't know about you, but my suit always fits so much better when it's custom to me rather than an off-the-rack suit. And that's what Indochino is all about. Indochino is the world's largest made-to-measure menswear brand. They make suits, shirts, coats, and more, and everything is made to your exact measurements for a great fit. You get to personalize all the details, including your lapel, lining, and your own monogram. They have hundreds of suit options for all occasions, including work, formal events, and even your own wedding. The best part is that they are affordable. Almost all of their custom clothing is under $400 US. The ordering process is simple. Just choose your fabric, pick your customizations, and submit your measurements. Your package will be delivered straight to your door in two weeks. You can get measured and designed your suit at your nearest Indochino showroom or do it all yourself online at Indochino.com. Start your style upgrade now with $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more at Indochino.com when entering the promo code BLUEWIRE at checkout. Plus, shipping is free. That's Indochino.com promo code BLUEWIRE for $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more. That's an incredible deal for made-to-measure clothing. You really have no excuse anymore to wear clothing that doesn't fit. 
right, back to the show now, talking Zach Levine. It was interesting because he clearly didn't have his own offensive game going, which is fine. I mean, that's not going to happen every single night. Obviously, he was hot in preseason, but he's not going to be averaging 23 points in 23 minutes a game like he was in preseason on those insane shooting volumes. So he was eventually going to drop off. So I wasn't necessarily too disappointed with his own offense or how he scored the ball. It was probably more his decision-making for others that was kind of problematic in this game. I know he did have the seven assists, but he also had the five turnovers. And beyond that, in in the final couple of possessions, now granted, we are recording this straight after the game. I'll probably want to go look at that, the, the last few possessions again. But it did seem like Zach as that lead handler, which is a role he's going to be cast in, in those last couple of minutes, he, his decision-making in those minutes wasn't great, particularly the one that sticks out in my mind, at least, is that that drive that he made on the left side left side of the court, dr- drove left, ended up not putting up a shot underneath the ring, ended up flicking the ball out to the right corner to Chris Dunn with about two seconds left on the clock. Dunn doesn't shoot it because Dunn is a non-shooter. He flicks it back to Zach Levine, and of course the team has a shot clock situation with a, a few minutes left in the game, which wasn't ideal. So... What did you make about Zach Levine as a creator more so than his own offensive game? Kind of reminded me of what Derek Rose used to say about kind of setting people up in the first three quarters and then the fourth quarter taking over for himself. Um, and I think Zach has that same issue where he kind of decides what he's going to do before he does it, regardless of what the defense is giving him. And so you saw him really kind of pressing a bit in some of those fourth quarter possessions where he'd attack when there wasn't really a lane or force up a, a bad jump shot when, you know, he had somebody open. Um, the, the play that you mentioned was a good example of that, just like kind of being aware of the shot clock and, and situationally what you need to get out of a given possession. Um, I think, you know, I, it's his sixth year in the league. He should be learning this stuff. Um, so I, I was a little bit disappointed with that, but I think, again, just him having a cold start really contributed to that. I think if he were had it going earlier on in the game, maybe he wouldn't have pressed so hard. Um, but it does kind of worry me that if Zach doesn't really have it going, how that can affect the team in terms of their their offense as a whole. Well, I mean, that's a fair point because obviously it gets tar- a more tougher for Larry Markner to sort of take over towards the back end of the game as well, given his natural position of playing that power forward role. Someone has to get him the ball for him to get into his spots in those last few moments. And when the defense sort of locks down and maybe gets more into a half-court setting, I think it's easier to take Lowry out of the game at that point. But at the same time, the Bulls have done a pretty good job themselves in taking Lowry out of the game themselves. And I guess if the ball does end up with Levine, and particularly if you're playing him out there with Chris Dunn as well, it's probably not the level of decision-making that you want out on the floor. I don't know why Sadoransky didn't play more minutes in the fourth quarter. Granted, Chris Dunn did have himself a pretty... I won't say impressive game, but he did look quite good tonight, actually. He had 11 points himself, playing some nice defense, four steals. So he did contribute to Chris Dunn. So it wasn't like he was bad together uh, tonight. But I guess when you combine Levine and Dunn together, there's not a whole lot of decision-making in the backcourt, which is something you and I have discussed on Twitter. But I, I think that combination can often freeze out guys like Markin and Porter Jr. too. And when you are a coaching staff deciding to kind of ride the hot hand with a guy like Dunn, who I really have been hard on over the past couple of seasons, but I really think he had a, a nice game. He was uh, very good around the rim, made all five of his layups, had a couple of and ones, um, which I tweeted, but it's something that he's always really struggled with, both the ability to finish at the rim and get to the line. So it was nice to see him improve there. Um, and you mentioned the steals, obviously his, his defense has been good, but um, 
the the way that he is succeeding is like playing against the other second unit and not playing against the starters in crunch time. So you can put him in in kind of the start or the middle of the third quarter and he can kind of take over or shift the momentum of the game and that's great, but you still need to decide situationally Sadoransky next to Levine is smarter. You can't just go with Dunn because Dunn had been playing well. He he had been playing well because of the situation that he was in. Um Sadoransky did not put up big numbers, but the the three-point shooting that he does have, um, the passing, it's just he's a much better fit next to Levine, and I think he takes some pressure off of Levine as far as decision-making goes. Yeah, let, let's talk rotations because I think that's an interesting topic to discuss. I mean, we, we essentially hit on it just then with the the combination Boylan was sort of throwing out there in his backcourt, but he, he, it looked like at one point he was going to close with Larry at the five and Thad at four, but then he sort of brought Wendell Carter back in in the last couple minutes. He obviously... I don't know if this is going to be something that sort of holds for the next few weeks, but he's taking Wendell Carter out early in games to get him more minutes with the second unit, particularly with Thad Young. So it seems like Boylan likes the idea of playing Wendell Carter, Thad Young, and Chris Dunn together to to really get that defensive unit out there and maybe creating extra possessions on the offense by creating stops on defense. It seems like he likes the idea of having those three together with Kobe White and whoever that you know, fifth player may be, whether it's Levine or Archie Diakono. And it kind of seems like he also likes the idea of playing Markin and Cornet uh, together as well. But tonight, at least, Cornet was basically played off the floor. He did not have a good game at all, only seven minutes in this game. So what did you make of, of Boylan's rotations in this game? And do you think that uh, there, there's some trends here to potentially work off? So I think the preseason is really a time when you can start to experiment with rotations, but it's such a small sample that I still think that early on in the season you need to do the same. Um, so I, I don't want to make any like sweeping conclusions about Boylan and his rotations so far, but um, you know it's interesting. I, I typically think of it as wanting to have like balanced lineups, and so you mentioned having the kind of all defense Chris Dunn, Thad Young, and Wendell Carter together. I don't know. Maybe that could work. Um, I'd like to see a little bit more of it. I know in that one preseason game, I think it was against the Hawks. It could have been the one before that. They really clicked and had um, kind of a nice stint together. So I'm I'm down to kind of see what else they come up with. And yeah, I think trying out different things that you may not just think of um, normally could end up being good, could result in something good. That's certainly fair. But yeah, it's just, it's just it'll be interesting to see how he manages this because he, he was sort of tossing some things around at the end as well. But something that we didn't talk about before was, and when we were talking about Zach Levine, that is, was his decision to go for that quick two at the end rather than taking a three with the bulls down. I think at three, it was three points at that point. He made that quick layup, four and a half seconds to go, bulls down by one. The Hornets advance it to the other end, obviously. And uh, I, th- I think that was a scoreline off the top of my head at least. But well, what did you make of Levine choosing to have that decision in terms of you know going for that quick two rather than pulling up for a three or, or taking that option for the Bulls to maybe come back and maybe steal this game on the road? Yeah, I think I need to rewatch the last minute or two just to kind of get a better sense of what happened. But generally speaking, I'm team take a three uh, in that situation. And this is a perfect example of why. He gets the two. It becomes a one-point game. You have to go down and foul them. They make two free throws, and now you're in the same situation, but you have less time. Um, I don't know whether or not he had a, a pull-up three in that situation. I think he can pretty much always get a pull-up three if he wants it. So in the, I, I would prefer him to do that. But, um, yeah, I think it was just kind of one of those situations, like I mentioned earlier, where he decided what he was going to do before the defense kind of 
set up for him and he just went with what he was going to do. Yeah, I mean, you could you could be right, but I guess the the, the reason why that's that was critical to sit, why that was a critical decision was the fact that the Bulls had no timer no timeouts at that point. So the fact that Zach sort of went down, made that shot, made that quick little that uh, quick little layup with four and a half seconds to go, essentially put the Bulls well just down by one point. But the ball would be advancing to the Hornets' end of the floor. Obviously, the Bulls would have no timeout to call to advance it back down their other end. So they would have had to have had a tough pull up shot or a tough pull-up three, a tough pull-up two, whatever the two may have been. It would have been a tough look uh, irrespective of what the or where it came on the on the court. But it was just an interesting decision-making, maybe error. Maybe it's too strong to say it's an error. It, it's obviously hard to say that in the moment. It's, a, it's a, you know, Zach has to make a quick decision in the moment in the moment at that point. So it's, it's maybe we're being a little, or me at least, maybe I'm being a little bit harsh, but... It was just a, I guess it was a symptomatic error of, of of Zach Levine's more wider game of, you know, he struggled with his own offense, but at the time, in terms of running the team's own offense, he he wasn't clicking as well. No, that's a good point. And you mentioned the timeouts too. I think that's something that Boylan really struggled with last year was timeout management at the end of games. Obviously, there weren't a ton of opportunities for him to practice that, but, um, you know, and, and listeners may think, you know, there were a couple of timeouts called there at the end. Those are all Hornets timeouts. The Bulls didn't have any for a couple of minutes there at the end. So um, that is something that Boylan is going to need to get better on. And especially the way that they were running ATOs during during this game, which was another thing that Boylan struggled with last year. They got a couple of really easy layups and dunks off of after timeout plays. Um, had they been able to advance the ball and maybe it was Fleming, maybe it was Boylan, who knows, but draw something up and maybe get an easy look and win that game. I think the other key standout, a key thing for me in this game was the fact that the Bulls, they, well, they stuck to their word in the sense of that they're only going to play Otto Porter around that 30 minutes a game for, for load management reasons. He had the 27, uh, well, let's call it 28 minutes in this game against the Hornets. So they stuck to their word on that fact, I suppose, which is, is commendable. But at the same time, it does put more pressure on the bench unit where Boylan has to really lean on that three-guard lineup, Kobe White, Chris Dunn, and Ryan Archidiakno. White and Dunn playing the bulk of those minutes, but I think what was stark in this game is is when Otto Porter does sit for the Bulls, it does create some problems for them on the wing in their wing rotation. Obviously, that was something that we all sort of knew was going to be a problem, but it was quite stark in this game, especially when Sadoransky is not playing his best game, and you can't really move him into that backup three role, which I think yeah. is probably something that they would like to do. Um, obviously, Chandler Hutchinson is out. Denzel Valentine is not in game shape. Um, you do really have to lean on Chris Dunn and Zach Levine, I guess, in some situations, uh, because Archie Diakno, you know, is a, is a scrappy defender, and and so is Kobe White, but they're just not big enough to be able to stick with some of those guys. Like Miles Bridges was just having a day. So, um, yeah, I think that's like a roster issue that they're going to need to address if they want to both be able to get away with this thirty-minute scheme for Otto and also um, make it to an advance in the playoffs. They definitely need some wing depth. That's probably the most important roster position that you can have and to be this limited is i think gonna gonna hurt this team quite a bit yeah i I think their move is waiting on Chandler hutchinson i don't know if they have many moves beyond that maybe shaq harrison once he's healthy and he's ready to go i guess boylan will try him at small forward but again that's probably problematic i suppose 
But just to just to give some context, Otto Porter when he was on the floor tonight, or when when he played, or he had an offensive rating of one twenty five point eight. The Bulls' defensive rating in his minutes one hundred and four point nine. So clearly he showed his worth. The Bulls were plus twenty when he was on the court. Same thing with Sadaransky. 113 offensive rating, 100 and let's call it 102 de- defensive rating, and Wendell Carter too, a 121 defensive uh, offensive rating, a 116 defensive rating. So those two through two players in, or those three players rather in the starting unit, were pluses from that standpoint. Markin and Levine net being the negatives. So it just goes to show, maybe even in the event that you know Porter. Sadaransky, Wendell Carter aren't necessarily providing the most points for their team. Their worth is measured in these sorts of stats. And it was quite clear, particularly with Porter, once he sat, that the Bulls were in quite a bit of trouble. Obviously, it's going to be interesting how they manage it, given that they, I think they're rightly doing the right situation with him in terms of load management, because it's important year for Otto from a contractual standpoint as well. But for the Bulls too, they need to work out if Otto Porter Jr. is their sort of long-term small forward option and maybe burning him out and and risking his health just because you don't have many other options, that that probably is a, a problematic move that we would have. You know, in, in the event that Boylan was running him out there for 38, 39 minutes, we'd probably be arguing here that uh, that, that was the wrong choice. So he's in kind of a tough situation here with Porter and the whole wing concept. Yeah, I don't have too much to add there. I think all good points. And, um, you know, just from like an in-game standpoint where you kind of are trying to decide how much somebody is impacting the game, like, yes... They combined for 11 points, Sadaransky and Otto Porter did. Um, but you mentioned their their offensive ratings. They were, they were also, Otto was plus 14 and Sadaransky was plus four. Um, while Markinen and Levine were each minus eight and Carter was plus two. So they're obviously having an impact on on even the box score, which I know the coaches do look at during timeouts and, and um, at the end of quarters. So you can kind of tell what kind of impact they're having and that may also just be one of those kinds of things that Boylan is, is working on where he just needs to figure out, okay, yes, Otto Porter is playing 28 minutes a game, but we need to know which 28 minutes and, and when can I bring him out in the second or third quarter so that I can have him for those last bit of minutes that it doesn't kind of go over the limit that they're trying to keep to. Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty good point. Last thing I want to close on because it, it was a bit of a downer game, to be honest with you. And I, I guess I want to end on that note in the sense that I was expecting a Bulls win tonight. I think most of us were, given who their opponent was, who the Bulls, or how the Bulls had been playing in preseason. So I was expecting a win as most people were. And it's an interesting situation because I wasn't expecting to be feeling this deflated on opening night, obviously, because I was expecting a win. But it almost is somewhat telling that we are deflated about the Bulls dropping this game because we had some expectations, whereas previously there were no expectations so i think just that in itself sort of highlights the change or the the change in mentality of how we the fans are sort of approaching this season versus maybe the last couple before it and i guess we're all feeling it tonight because there were some expectations yeah i think that's a a fair point and also just like you know it wasn't the same kind of dominance and style of play against the hawks in that final preseason game but i think they are playing a much more exciting game um, and one that will just be more watchable for everybody. Um, whether you're kind of like in the weeds like I am or just casually kind of interested in what the Bulls are, what product the Bulls are putting out there. So they're definitely more exciting. And we didn't even talk about Kobe White, who had a pretty nice 17-7 um, and 7 rookie debut. I think he's going to be a really exciting player, super fast. And just like you saw a couple of times him get the ball in transition and either push it ahead or take it himself. 
So I think he's going to be a contributor in some way. Um, and I think that's kind of more than I was expecting from him, to be honest. Yeah, that's a fair point. I, I completely forgot about him, but he was really good. Seven assists as well for Kobe White. That was something he was definitely not doing in preseason, but he looked quite good at sort of handling the ball, not necessarily creating as the point guard, but creating in off-ball situations for his teammates. So he was quite a good player in his first official NBA game. So maybe that's probably the best place to close, to be honest with you. That was a positive, along with Markman, the, the, the play of Kobe White, the first guard off the bench, and he looks like he's going to be a positive contributor for the Bulls straight away, which is something I probably wasn't expecting. I thought that maybe we, we may need to give him a, a, a few more months or some time, and maybe he would play playing like this sort of it towards the back end of this season, but he's already showing up and giving 17 points and 17, seven assists in his first showing. That's pretty damn good from Kobe White. So let's hope they get it together against the Memphis Grizzlies. I believe that is the next game coming up, there's, there's, and then they play the Toronto Raptors on Saturday as well. So the Bulls have... Two opportunities here to sort of right the ship. I posted before the game that their first six games were quite winnable. Maybe they could go five and one. Uh, it's going to be tough to go five and one now, given that the start of the season with a loss. But nonetheless, Will, I appreciate you coming on and talking balls with me after this regular season opener. Anytime. Yeah, happy to come on. And always, uh, always fun to talk balls with you. Perfect, mate. Well, I appreciate you coming on. You'll definitely be on during the rest of the season, I'm sure. Follow Will on Twitter, people, at Won't God Leap. Obviously, he's t- tweeting a lot about the Bulls, but he's also tweeting and covering the Warriors as well. So if you like your Warriors basketball as much as you do the Bulls, follow Will on Twitter and, and get across all his work that he puts out there. Follow me on Twitter too, at MK Hoops. Follow the show on Twitter as well, at Bulls HQ Pod. And if you want to send me an email, do so at BullsHQPod at gmail.com. Join the Discord forum that we've set up for Bulls HQ. We've got 75 Bulls fans up in there at the moment. We're trying to get that number towards 100 by the back end of this year. So if you want to be part of a ongoing Bulls conversation, we'd love you to be part of it. Hit me up on the email, bullshqpod at gmail.com. But thank you for listening to this episode of the show. Unfortunately, we couldn't have started with a W, but maybe that'll come on the weekend. We'll be back on Monday to wrap up these weekend games. So we'll speak then, Bulls fans. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.